Well, good afternoon, everybody. Nice to see you uh, on a Victoria Day weekend. Many people are away, but uh, we also have a few games. Uh, some people are able to be here because of Victoria Day. Um, so it's uh, a, uh, overall a bit of a loss, but also a slight gain. Regardless, we're glad you're here, and welcome to those of you who are on Zoom. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we come now to the second half of chapter 9. And there are some notes uh, that are made available for you. And uh, you have, may have noticed that there is much in the notes that I don't refer to in the space of a fairly short sermon. One of the things that I have done this week that's different than previous weeks is I have put in bold in the footnotes and also in some of the quotations uh, that come later, um, in bold are points of practical relevance and application for your um, benefit and blessing. Well, last week we uh, noted three ways in which this new go deep kingdom righteousness of Jesus manifested itself. And that was with a new kind of forgiveness. Jesus pronounces forgiveness of sins, something that only God can do. And Jesus made no apology for that, and rightly so. Jesus showed us that people who are on the outside have access. People who were marginalized at the time, the tax collectors, and people who were called notorious sinners had access uh, to Jesus. And then in the midst of the discussion about fasting, Jesus talked about how his new kingdom righteousness and the body of Christ of which we are a part, we are believers in Jesus, is a source of great joy. It was as though they couldn't fast because they were having such a great time in the presence of Jesus. Jesus said that time will part uh, when he went to die on the cross, but Jesus is raised from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father. So, folks, although we can continue to fast, and we would do well to fast, the party continues, and fasting can never be with the somberness and sobriety of the past. And so the story continues in verses 18 to 34 by giving us three more ways in which the kingdom righteousness of Jesus is manifest. And that consists of the offering of new life, it consists of the offering of new sight, the story of the two blind men, and it consists in the offering of new words for fresh ears, the story of the healing of the man who was mute, or as some say, the deaf mute. There's an outline of what I want to cover on page three, and another feature of the notes is that I have uh, finally figured out how to add pagination to Microsoft Word. Uh, so, when I'm talking about the page numbers, those of you on Zoom might particularly benefit, or those of you who are trying to help people find their way through Zoom, uh, Joseph and May. So, the title of the sermon is at the top of page 3, What More Can We Learn About Jesus' New Godi Law-Abiding Kingdom Righteousness? Now, this is a righteousness that we are commissioned to obey and to teach others. As I was thinking about preparing a sermon for this afternoon, I thought, you know, sometimes we get into church mode and we can forget the point. 
that we um, get together at a certain time on Sunday and sing hymns. We do that. But the whole point is that we get together on Sundays and we do it in order to praise God corporately. And so we sing and we sing in words of adoration and devotion to God and give Him the praise that He is due. When it comes to the sermon, it's not just sort of a 25 minute uh, occasion for entertainment or even uh, instruction for its own sake. But and this is especially important to Matthew. Matthew is uh, like a disciple's manual. It's the equivalent of a driving handbook for those of you who are learning how to drive. Um, each chapter in each lesson has been designed by Matthew in order to equip us so that we can obey Jesus better and also that we can teach others about Jesus better. So um, we're not just at church, we're at school. And uh, I'm quick to justify that perhaps because um, I'm a former professor and I give you notes with footnotes. They look like lecture notes. But I think Matthew would say, uh, amen and touche. That's my story, I'm sticking to it. Anyway, it really is true, friends. Um, this is an occasion for us to learn and grow. Because the whole point of Matthew's Gospel, as we know from the Great Commission, is that we at the end are commissioned to go into all the world and to make disciples. And we do that by teaching people to obey Jesus' commandments. And so, uh, as we come to chapter 9, we continue to notice that these chapters are actually a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount. They give us uh, practical, daily life applications of the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll see some cases of that uh, today. You know, as I was thinking about the fact that uh, in much of Matthew, it seems as though Jesus changes the law. And we've seen in Matthew's Gospel a tension between uh, Jesus saying on the one hand, uh, I haven't come to change a thing. There's not anything wrong with the Old Testament, and I'm not going to change so much as one little eye on a dot on an I or one little cross on a T. But then Jesus goes ahead and he kind of seems to change the law. And I begin to think, you know, that's a bit troubling because, um, I mean, is the law God's word or is it not? Um, was it God's perfect law in the Old Testament or was it not? And if Jesus is changing it, maybe it wasn't. But there's a good example of what I think is going on throughout Matthew's Gospel um, in um, the account of divorce. Jesus speaks of it. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says that uh, divorce is not permissible. But then in Matthew chapter 19, he's confronted by the Sadducees who say, well, wait a minute. Moses allowed somebody to issue a certificate of divorce. And this is the important point. Jesus says that was so because of your sinfulness. In other words, the Mosaic law of the Old Testament reckoned with the fact that we're sinners. And that's appropriate, right? It's a little bit like uh, giving a, a driver's manual for people who have uh, broken legs. Um, or um, rigging up a car for someone who has uh, a physical impediment. The instructions are different if you have um, a, uh, a malady or an impairment than if you were whole. So the fact that Jesus 
is changing the laws, so it seems, isn't to suggest that there was anything wrong with the Old Testament laws, but Jesus, as the sinless one, comes along and says, I, I've, I've got the more fuller answer. And in the Old Testament law, there were sometimes accommodations that are given. So I thought that was just helpful in uh, thinking about as we go through Matthew's Gospel and as we continue to see cases where Jesus um, keeps the law, as he always does, but in other words, he kind of changes it. So um, I'm in the section on background and content on page three, and the narrower scope is simply to remind us of what I've always said, about what we covered last week, forgiveness, access, joy, and this week, new life, new sight, and new words. Jesus brings new life from death in the first story, in verses 18 to 25. He brings new sight in the story of um, the two blind men. He actually gives sight literally for sore eyes because he heals these blind men who, are, um, who have uh, probably kind of gory eye problems. Um, they often were in those days. And then in the story of the deaf mute, Jesus provides new words. And this is a lead-up to the call for the harvest at the end of chapter 9, and also for chapter 10, when Jesus begins to commission the disciples to go and share the good news. So you have to have a voice box that works in order to proclaim the good news. So these are miracle stories, but at the same time, they contain lessons. And the challenge for the preacher and the careful exegete is not to go overboard with the lessons, to turn them into kind of cute little maxims. But the lessons ought to emerge from the guts of the text, as it were. Um, guts, I found, isn't a bad word, it's a perfectly good word. I'm not being irreverent, it's, it's, uh, it's just a sort of down-to-earth, real word. So as we look at chapter 9, we'll continue to see some motifs and themes. And I'll just mention them quickly in passing. One is that Jesus transcends certain taboos to go deep with this new righteousness. This is what I'm talking about, the tension between Jesus keeping the law and sort of breaking it on the one hand. So when Jesus goes and lays a hand on the dead girl, uh, that was breaking the law. You're not supposed to come in contact with a corpse. You defile yourself. But Jesus is saying in his own heart, I think, well, this is a dead daughter of Israel, and I've come to bring new life to her. So I'm going to take her by the hand, and I'm going to bring her back. Jesus understands the law because he has the mind of God and fulfills it perfectly. So too, when the woman comes and touches him, uh, this is a woman who has uh, had a problem with perpetual hemorrhaging for 12 years, and she knows she's defiled, she's isolated from the community. And when she touches Jesus, she defiles him. Jesus is not upset at all. He turns around and he says, Take heart, daughter, your faith has saved you. So, um, in very tiny footnotes, in, uh, in 30, in 31, I'll just read them quickly. Jesus breaks purity laws by touching the hand of the dead girl, but to make her alive. By the impure woman having touched him, but to restore her to purity and dignity and grace, and possibly by touching the damaged eyes of the blind, but to bring them sight. Jesus has come to fulfill Old Testament law. And as we come to think about how to be followers of Jesus, we are to take our cue from Matthew's Gospel. Somebody uh, spoke to me a few days ago, or a few weeks ago, about the problem that they had that some neighbor at the cottage 
remove their boundary markers. Well, there's an Old Testament law that you should not remove somebody's boundary markers. They wanted to know what I, what I thought they should do about it. And I said, this isn't good. Um, but if you're going to ask them to put the boundary markers back, you should do it in a, in a, in a super generous spirit where you sort of say, what, my land is your land. Anytime you want to come on, you're more than welcome. So it's this idea of sort of holding a balance between keeping the law on the one hand, but going deep and going generous on the other. And Matthew's gospel is designed to kind of help us orient our life to living this new kingdom righteousness following the footsteps of Jesus. Another one of the motifs is that good news is hard to hold back. I wonder if you noticed at the end of the second and third stories that uh, although the blind men were told to keep quiet about it in verse 31, but they went out and publicized the thing throughout that whole land. Same too, when the dead girl was brought to life in verse 26, well, this news got around the whole land. And after the deaf mute, or after the deaf demoniac, and the mute demoniac was healed, they said, nothing like this has ever happened in Israel. There's something about the good news of Jesus that kind of makes us just sort of want to get out. And friends, it's a delight to know that we have good news to share with others. That Jesus Christ has come into the world not to condemn it, but to bring life, but to bring joy, but to teach us how to fulfill God's laws so that we can live lives that are rich and meaningful. The other thing that comes in these stories is a continuing lesson about faith. Now, the dead girl doesn't have faith because she's dead. That can remind us that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Jesus died for us. But in a sense, I want to suggest that the hemorrhaging woman actually kind of is a filling for the dead girl. And Jesus commends her faith. We'll see certain similarities between the woman who is hemorrhaging and the dead girl in a moment. And then of the men who are blind, at first Jesus doesn't Healed. He waits until they actually have to all follow them in the house. They're being door crashing pests, as it were. And Jesus turns to them and says, Do you still believe that I can do this? And he draws out of them a confession of their faith, and they say, Yes, Lord. So faith continues to play an important role. My friends, we, we find a generous Jesus in this gospel, an outrageously generous Jesus in this gospel. An outrageously generous Jesus who reaches out to the marginalized. But that doesn't mean that faith isn't essential. Our response is to say amen to God's righteousness, and that involves the exercise of faith. So join me as we come and look at these three different um, episodes. And once again, I will read the passages. Um, because um, I've highlighted particular things that help jog my memory, um, and it doesn't hurt to have them read again as wonderfully as Carol read them for us from the ESV. By the way, folks, we have new Bibles in church that are designed for people who have English as a second language, and uh, we uh, welcome you to read along um, using those new Bibles if um, English is um, while speaking these things to them, a particular ruler doing worshipful obeisance before him and saying, My daughter has just died, but if you come and lay your hand on her, 
to live. Having arisen, Jesus followed him along with his disciples. Well, here's an example of faith that reminds us of the story of the centurion in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. This is uh, a man who comes from only an upper class. Um, he's a privileged individual. We know from Mark's gospel that he was a ruler of the synagogue. Matthew isn't much interested in that. But it's while he was speaking these things to them, in other words, that noise or that, that, that lesson that came about joy uh, and about access and about forgiveness, we're told by Matthew that the themes continue, more good news about kingdom righteousness. A particular ruler approached, doing worshipful obeisance. Of followers of Jesus, this is a lesson for us. These people know to worship before Jesus. And then the man shows incredible faith. He says, my daughter has just died. Well, game over, right? No, he says, my daughter has just died. But, if you come and lay your hand on her, yet she will live. There are no bounds to the power of Jesus to make a difference in people's lives. Not even death is a game Shut her down, as it were. So the man says, My daughter has just died, but if you come and lay your hand on her, yet she will live. And then Matthew, as if to affirm this, says, Jesus died and followed him. Normally, disciples follow the leader, right? But when the disciples have it right, Jesus wants to implicitly affirm that. So Matthew says that Jesus, having arisen, he's going to do that later on, isn't he? Jesus follows him. Jesus, in effect, is saying, we're on the same team, pal. Um, this kind of faith is exactly what I'm looking for for my disciples. So if you're doing that, we're on the same page. Uh, I, if you're following along and you're going in the right direction, I'm leading as I follow as it were. There's something about the background that's important to recognize here. And the background lies in this. You remember several weeks ago, we talked about how um, there was a prophet who was going to come who had uh, special authority, and this was a prophet like Moses. It was prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And two figures in the Old Testament who live up to this prophet of this portrait of super Moses like prophets are Elijah and Elisha. And he's going to drop the second of trust. One of the things that Elijah did was he came and he rose, he resurrected a dead boy. One of the things that Elijah did in 2 Kings chapter 4 was he came and he resurrected a dead boy. So notice there's continuity and difference here. The continuity lies in that Jesus a true Mosaic prophet, the real deal, the Son of God, the Messiah, the prophet, the prophet in the steps of Moses, is also going to do this. He does it for a girl. There's a difference. There's to go deep. The attention would have been on the men. Uh, women in that culture were often uh, not particularly valued. And the ruler of the synagogue says, my daughter is dead. 
This is a great concern to Jesus as it would be if it were a boy. But you see, it's the boy changeover to girl motif that introduces us to this new, deeper, richer concept that Jesus is bringing. And so Jesus comes along, and you'll notice the story continues in verse 23. When he came to the house of the ruler and saw the flute players and crowd mournfully in turmoil, he was saying to these mourners, Step outside, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. But they, in turn, were laughing at him. Here's a little picture of the tension between Jesus and more traditionally minded Jews at this time. And once the crowd was ousted, he came and touched her hand. And the girl was raised. Elijah and Elisha prostrated themselves on the dead body of the boys. And so if Jesus were at all concerned about sort of uh, his own issues and his own image, um, presumably he would have laid on the body of the dead girl. Of course, that, that sends off alarm bells, doesn't it? Um, so Jesus gets a taboo by reaching out and grabbing her hand instead. But that's pretty minor compared to uh, the motif of Jesus stretching himself up. My point has to do with propriety, friends. And also dignity. Jesus reaches out and he takes the hand of the dead girl that falls in the house. Jesus knows the boundaries when it comes to women. And he shows those well. So at the same time as bestowing dignity upon her by raising him up, raising her up, uh, he shows the propriety from which I believe we are to take example. And if you think that's a bit much and that we're drawing too much from this, I want to remind us that Matthew is very careful about what he leaves, what he includes in the story, and what he leaves out. I believe that the lessons for disciples are evident by the fact that Matthew leaves out of this account the disciples who we embark. Later, when it comes to the woman who was uh, who touched uh, Jesus, the disciples rebuke Jesus. They say, well, what do you mean who touched me? Look around. I mean, everybody touched you. Uh, Matthew excises that as if to say, disciples don't contradict the master. He knows what he's doing. So take your cue from Jesus, obedience is important, and uh, none of that kind of sarcastic um, stuff. Jesus is the Lord, as it were. So, let's go back to the woman. Some people have wondered, rightly, why this story is interrupted by a woman who is hemorrhaging. I think the short answer is it actually happened this way. It's recorded in all the Gospels, but there is a link. Here again we have a woman. Now this woman is issuing blood, and she's been doing so for 12 years, which is the same age as the girl. Well, here's to be roughly the age when that girl herself would have started to have similar kinds of emissions. And the hemorrhaging, the giving of blood, was a taboo because, according to Old Testament teaching, the life of the person was in the blood. Life was synonymous with blood. Right? This is evident today. I mean, blood donors are encouraged to come and give the gift of life, to give blood. And so here's a woman who is issuing blood, which is a symbol of kind of perpetual death. And she's been doing this for a dozen years, the same length of time. 
uh, that this girl has been alive. And she comes up behind Jesus and she touches the tassel of the fringe of his garment. And she says, if only I might touch his garment, I will be saved. Jesus touches the dead girl's hand. The woman, who I think kind of symbolizes the girl, comes and reaches out in faith and shows the faith that the girl cannot show because she's dead. And um, underscores for Matthew again the importance of faith. She kept telling herself, if only I might touch his garment, I would be saved. Well, folks, if there's an emphasis on the change between men and women, which I believe there is, there can't be any doubt in that again, Matthew and the Holy Spirit is still a story here about a woman. And Jesus responding to this woman, he rotates and sees her and says, How dare you defy me? I'm a man and you're a woman. No, of course not. He says, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was saved from that hour on. You know, it never hurts to remind ourselves, because we need to hear over again for the first time, that faith in Jesus Christ is absolutely crucial. Jesus is not merely a good teacher. He's not merely a noble example to follow. He's the Son of God, and He's come to bring us life, and to bring us joy, and to bring us hope, and to bring us salvation. And He does that freely. And what we do in response is simply say, Amen, and Hallelujah, and our Amen is kind of embodied by the demonstration of faith. You know, if you're drowning, I, 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 I reach out my hand, you got to grab it, right? And so faith is, is, is the response that comes. that says, yes, Lord, I want you to save me. We all need salvation, not from our maladies as much as from the condition of sin that we live in. The only possible favor that Putin has done anyone against all the horrible atrocities that he's committed, so far as I can think is to remind 21st century men that we are a people with a sick, evil virus within us, and we need to be delivered from that. The way we're delivered from that is by an offer of forgiveness of sins, which comes when we put our faith in Jesus. And I can simply mean saying, Lord, you know, I've been coming to church for a long time. I, I, come, I come and say the liturgy. Lord, maybe I've never set foot in the church before. I simply want to say that I want to trust you. I want to follow you. I want to put my faith in you. And when we do that, our deliverance is short. My daughter, my son, your faith has saved you. Saving faith is the criteria that is highlighted again and again in Scripture. And so if you've never in your own mind as you think about your relationship with God, if you've never sort of thought about it, I want to encourage you strongly to think about it and just say, ask yourself right now, am I trusting in God for my salvation? Uh, and I, that's got to be there in place of, am I trusting in my own goodness? Am I trusting in the fairness of God? Nobody's going to sort of say, they've got more good than bad. 
No, we are to trust entirely upon the goodness and grace of God as shown in Jesus. And if we're trusting in Him for our salvation, then we can be sure that we are members of the kingdom community. We will, uh, by God's grace, continue to walk in His footsteps and follow Him. We come now to the story of uh, the uh, two blind men. Matthew seems to like tombs for reasons that are uh, a little bit unclear. I have a, a suggestion about that in the footnotes that I will pass over. Oh, you know, I should check in with my own outline. Uh, that might be helpful. Pretty well on track. Yeah. Okay, so we're in verses 23 to 25 on page uh, 4. Uh, sorry, we're in verses 27 to 31, number 2 on page 4. I'll read it. And Jesus passing on from there, for as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out and saying, Gideon, son of David. And after he went into the house, the blind men followed him in. And Jesus says to them, it's in the present tense, to keep it wide. And so Jesus says to them, do you still believe that I am able to do this? To which they replied, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done for you. Notice those things of faith in him and trust. And their eyes were opened, and he sternly admonished them, saying, See that no one knows about this. But they went about and publicized the thing throughout that whole land. Well, there's a certain irony, isn't there? And it doesn't go past Matthew, I'm sure, that the first people to affirm and call Jesus the Son of David, which is to sort of say, You're the Messiah, we get it. Blind dudes. You see, there's a mystery to the kingdom, but people who think they get it don't. And the people who know they don't get it do. And so these blind men, they call out and they say, Have pity on the Son of David. And Jesus just Apparently walks on by he's in the house. Seems like a bit of a put off. But these men do what a good disciple does. They persevere. And they follow him in the house. They say, we're going to crash this party. We want Jesus to respond. And that act of determined faith that believes Jesus can deliver is something that is emphasized in this gospel over and over again. So Jesus then turns to the mother in the house and says, well, welcome to our crashes. Uh, do you still believe that I can do this? He looks at his body. Yes, Lord. There he is a model for how his disciple responds. Persistent in faith, petitioning, recognizing our need, we're blind, we're blind. And then when we're questioned about our faith, we affirm it. Yes, Lord. One commentator has reminded us that every time we say amen, we're basically saying, yes, Lord. We're declaring our belief in God's dependability and in our belief that Jesus and God are the answer to our problem and that they can deliver on the good of the word. So Jesus, again, he breaks the laws, assuming that there was losing or whatever with the eyes, which might have been uh, the case, we're not sure. Uh, in any case, he touches their eyes. By doing that, he bestows dignity on people. We've seen this in the previous episodes of, as well. 
And he says, according to your faith, get done for you. Not the amount of faith, because if we have so much as the faith of a mustard seed, we can move mountains. But it's in accordance with your faith. I have a footnote that would take you probably too long to find, but you can find it yourself. It talks about uh, Matthew Henry commenting on Jesus affirming our faith and Jesus naming our faith, even when we're not necessarily totally sure of ourselves. One of my favorite verses is an echo of the words of the man who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe. Please help my unbelief. Jesus responds to that. So it wasn't according to the measure of the, of the two men's faith, but it was because of the faith itself that Jesus responds. And again, their eyes are open. Now here Jesus sternly admonishes them, saying, see that no one knows about this. Well, think about it. How am I supposed to keep my blindness a secret? It was a logical problem to not obey Jesus' word. You're right. There's also kind of a rational explanation. Like, why would you want to keep this a secret? And if you want to score a bid in this country, you're going to have to, you know, have to go on the road. Uh, you need a publicity manager, Jesus, and we can be that for you. So they ignore the admonishment of Jesus. Keep quiet about it. Jesus had a reason that he couldn't imagine. Jesus knew that they, people had a different understanding of the Messiah and the one he was going to fulfill, and so Jesus is kind of doing containment, damage control here. But they are saying, in effect, we know better. I don't know about you, but I have a confession to make, and that is, is that if I don't understand why I'm supposed to do something, or I'm not supposed to do something, I'm very hard to do. And I can't think of any reason why you would tell me this. I'm not going to do it. I can't think of any reason why you forbid this. Oh, I'm going to do it. Friends, Jesus knows best. And rationalization isn't going to do it. Uh, common sense isn't going to be an excuse. Matthew's criteria and Jesus' criteria is that the disciple obeys the command of the master regardless. In one of those World War II, in one of those submarine shows, uh, movies, and I thought it was the Hunt for Red October. I can swear it was the Hunt for Red October, but I went back and watched it, and it didn't happen the way that I remember. Anyway, what I remember is Sean Connery, who is the master submarine captain, uh, who has a well-trained crew, uh, and they are at his bidding. The enemy fires a torpedo, at his submarine. And as I recall it, although I can't find it in the movie, maybe it was a different head, I don't know, but I, I'm sure, I can swear. John Connery says, change course and head directly towards the torpedo. Sean uh, Connery speaking with a Scottish Russian accent, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's what he does. Head directly towards the path of the torpedo. And of course, the people say that the guys say, repeating answer. Uh, head towards the path of the torpedo. I aye, sir. And then the man saying, Sir, the, the, the torpedo is estimated to be one minute away from Manhattan. Increase your speed. 